Welcome to Pratidwani, where we try to humanize science. I'm your host, G.V. Pawan Kumar, and this is my solo podcast episode. And the episode title is Let Go the Ego, Some Lessons from History of Science. Let me tell you a story. In 1940s, a professor in America drives 100 miles in winter snow. He does this for a full semester to teach a class of two students and this person's name is Subramaniam Chandrasekhar, the teacher's name, I mean to say. The two students who was teaching was Yang and Lee. And in 1957, the Nobel Prize in Physics went to parity loss, which Yang and Lee postulated. So, why did Chandra do this? This is a question I'm always fascinated by. Because Chandra himself was an accomplished scientist and he could have easily said, okay, come on, I'm not going to go to the class. Let the students come to me. Why should I drive such a long period of time and such a long distance? No, Chandra did not do that. In fact, jokingly, he told that uh, his whole co- uh, class got a Nobel Prize. Uh, and uh, that is something which is very fascinating to know. Chandra, in an essence, was the epitome of an egoless scientist. He did not see pursuit of science and being a teacher as something superior, but uh, which was something part of a larger ecosystem and community. Now the question is, uh, are all scholars like Chandra? Do all of them behave that way? Unfortunately, no, they don't. That is an issue here. So a scholar with knowledge usually has uh, quite a lot of confidence. Sometimes this confidence clashes with the ego, And this ego creates a lot of problem. And there are many interesting examples from the history of science, which I'm going to discuss. First example is, of course, the Isaac Newton. And I'm going to tell you an interesting story related to Isaac Newton's clash with various different researchers. Then Arthur Stanley Eddington, one of the most renowned astronomers of his time, also had an issue. And there is finally Linus Pauling, who was also a celebrated chemist. And even went on to win a Nobel Prize in not only chemistry, but also in Peace Prize. But he himself had a lot of ego. (laughs) A person who wins Nobel Prize in Peace can also have a lot of problem (laughs) in finding some kind of a peace, you see. So all three were great scientists. uh, But uh, under certain circumstances, their ego got better of them. And this episode is a story about their ego and also related uh, issues related to how ego can perturb Uh, progress in science. Let's look at the first story. The clash between Isaac Newton and Robert Hooke. Both were outstanding scientists, extremely reputed people. In uh, in, uh, 1671 or so, uh, Newton uh, came up with this reflection telescope, which became a sensation during that particular time. In 1672 and 75, Newton uh, published his papers on optics in Royal Society journals. And Robert Hooke criticizes those papers. So Newton obviously is not very happy about that. And uh, he feels that why is this person really criticizing my work and etc. etc. And also really, Newton is a person who doesn't take criticism very easily. So, of course, Newton is annoyed because of that particular aspect. And uh, in generally, he gets detached from the community of researchers who are performing uh, uh, 
research within that particular area or in the area associated with that particular research. In late 1670s or so, Robert Hooke and Newton start their correspondence again. This is related to planetary motion and uh, they are interested in trajectory of particles thrown from a tower. So they are now trying to figure out the trajectory of the particle and they are trying to hypothesize, come up with theory and trying to solve this uh, interesting problem. Hooke essentially corrects Newton's answer. Okay, uh, Newton actually gives a particular solution to this problem, but Robert Hooke, uh, during the correspondence, corrects the Newton's answer, telling that there is some particular flaw in this. And again, Newton uh, uh, gets annoyed, and they stop corresponding again. You know, it's it's quite funny because uh, generally uh, one expects these very big uh, scientists to actually be open to the ideas. But they're really actually having some kind of a petty-mindedness in this particular process. So in 1684 or so, Halley, the person whose name is associated with Halley Comet, interacts with uh, Robert Hooke. And Halley is interested in the question of uh, orbital motion. So he's trying to understand the motion of uh, planets and uh, what is the kind of orbits one one can actually uh, postulate for the planets, etc., etc. So, uh, Hook, uh, who interacts with uh, Halley, tells that uh, the solution to that particular problem is elliptical in nature. Of course, even Kepler uh, gave this particular hypothesis, but he did not give give any specific kind of an explanation why it should be elliptical in nature. So. In the same year, Halley also meets uh, Isaac Newton. And Newton also, of course, gives the solution as elliptical in nature. But uh, in this particular situation, Newton elaborates on why that should be an ellipse. And he gives a very interesting kind of uh, theory and also elaborates on the details of that particular theory. Obviously, Halley is very impressed because uh, Newton was able to solve this particular problem. During this particular period of time, Newton also realizes that he is indeed working on an important problem. So therefore, he really puts his time and effort in understanding this problem and also expanding on this particular problem. And in 1686, he starts the nine-page paper, which essentially is the seed for the Principia Mathematica, his magnus opus on uh, mechanics, which plays a very critical role going further and literally changing the world uh, of science because Principia Mathematica is considered as one of the greatest uh, scientific achievements uh, in, in, in the history of science. Interestingly, during that particular time, the Royal Society does not have money to publish this magnus opus, okay? Because the previous year or during that particular time, they would have published a, paper, uh, a, a book and uh, there would be no funds to publish it. Of course, then Royal Society also probably would have had limited funds. And this is a very interesting situation. It happens so that uh, Halley, with whom uh, Newton also interacted with, uh, invites uh, Newton to publish his paper in Philosophical Transaction of Royal Society. And uh, the, the work, uh, which is essentially the seed of the Newton's Principia, gets published in this particular case. Now, after the publication, Robert Hooke gets very furious. 
he blames newton of plagiarism because some of the ideas is already floating in the air so to speak and uh, robert hook thinks that uh, these ideas which newton has published mainly kind of originates from some of the correspondence with robert hook had with isaac newton so this crosses a lot of clash between these two gentlemen and it creates a lot of uh, friction between them and uh, robert hook asks credit for the inverse square law because newton would have hypothesized the inverse square law and he would have actually taken that particular idea and expanded in this uh, particular publication which further leads to principia mathematica newton also reacts very very kind of weirdly what he does is he removes all the references from the principia in which he had referred to robert hooke's publication this is kind of very petty but you can see that there are two great men who are really you know uh, having uh, done enormous amount of work but still they are really fighting uh, like uh, very uh, very small children and sometimes even children don't do that uh, but uh, it's it's kind of astonishing to see people like newton and hook really fought uh, with each other by the way newton also had a lot of problem with leibniz and uh, the history of science tells that uh, newton was not a very easy person to work with or interact with and uh, it 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 is a kind of a an unfortunate thing that uh, egos plays uh, such a critical role in these kind of things which means that the inference we can draw is ego is uh, detrimental to scientific discourse and uh, which is not very good because it really perturbs the way knowledge can progress and uh, this is one of the unfortunate situations and there are very good references uh, for example the dawn of science written by padmanabhan t padmanabhan and vasanthi padmanabhan published in 2019 has elaborate kind of uh, exposition on this particular kind of clash between the two two people there's a lot of interesting details about uh, isaac newton also if somebody is interested uh, i would urge you to have a look at this reference it's it's a good read the next story i want to describe is the clash between astronomers and an astrophysicist arthur stanley eddington versus uh, subramaniam chandrashekar eddington was a great astronomer in fact uh, during that during the uh, kind of peak period eddington was considered as probably one of the greatest astronomers uh, in in europe and also across the world because he also verifies uh, newton's uh, general theory of relativity through an outstanding observation and uh, chandra like many people admired eddington and he would have been interacting with eddington for quite some time when he was a student at cambridge and uh, during these regular interactions he would have exchanged ideas he would have learnt a lot from eddington also so in 1935 or so there is a royal astronomical society meeting in which uh, chandra presents uh, his complete solution to the stellar equation and uh, eddington criticizes chandra's work and uh, chandra is not aware of the fact that eddington is also speaking in that meeting on very same topic on which chandra presented his complete solution so eddington refuses to accept the limit of the mass of a star 
which Chandra would have hypothesized, which is now very famously known as the Chandrasekhar limit. But Eddington is very reluctant to consider Chandra's contribution. So he proposes his own alternative theory, which uh, is not very convincing during that particular time. This particular episode has a very deep impact on uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar's work and outlook. It actually changes the way he thinks about science and, science and scientists. And uh, in future, it has a deep implication on, on how to look at the science itself as a pursuit. Now, uh, during this particular period, Chandra also takes uh, the input from various different scientists. For example, Rosenfeld, Niels Bohr, Wolfgang Pauli, Moller. So, all of them say that Chandra's work is in the right direction. And uh, Eddington's work actually was not correct. But uh, the domination of Eddington in, the, in that particular field was so much that nobody was ready to confront him uh, directly. Eddington kept criticizing Chandra. You know, that is very unfortunate. You can see how ego is really coming into the, into the picture here. In fact, he calls Chandra's work at some point of time as stellar buffoonery. You know, stellar buffoonery. This is the word he uses, unfortunately, to ridicule the work of uh, Subramaniam Chandrasekhar. And it's very unfortunate because Eddington was an outstanding scientist. He did not have to do this. But uh, he was really taking on a, a, a novice and a, a young person who had done some outstanding work. So in 1939, Chandra publishes uh, his complete theory. And of course, a lot of people read it and they clearly see that there is a lot of interesting content in that particular uh, uh, work. And uh, they also clearly see that the uh, Eddington's uh, thought process was not correct for uh, at least in this particular problem. Chandra still admired uh, Eddington. In spite of the fact that uh, Eddington was so rude uh, to him, especially in conferences and other places, <clears throat> uh, he would still interact with uh, Eddington all throughout his life. In fact, uh, during Eddington's birth centenary, Chandra gave uh, lectures in Cambridge University. And the title of the lectures, you know what? Eddington, the most distinguished astrophysicist of his time. Okay, this is the kind of approach Chandrasekhar took and you can see what approach uh, Arthur Eddington uh, took to, to, to really come up with ideas and also confront those ideas scientifically. Unfortunately, ego sometimes uh, masks scientific judgment and this is a, a nice example to see how unfortunately uh, Eddington uh, really kind of uh, you know brought in his ego and uh, could not take uh, the point that he was wrong. And this sometimes happens with people with uh, with strong views and strong egos. There's also a very nice uh, paper in Physics Today by Kameshwar Wali, who, by the way, is the uh, biographer of uh, Subramaniam Chandrasekhar in Physics Today, published in 1982. If somebody is interested, I would urge you to have a look at that particular paper. It's, it's uh, very well written. And there's a very long description of this battle between Eddington and Chandrasekhar. And uh, it's worth, uh, worth uh, kind of uh, reading it. The third uh, battle, or so to speak, the clash of ego 
comes between Linus Pauling and Dan Shetman. Linus Pauling was a great chemist. You know, his contributions to quantum chemistry and molecular biology is unparalleled. He's considered as one of the greatest chemists to make a connection between quantum mechanics and chemistry and also very deep insights into molecular structure and the electronic structure of uh, of molecules etc etc in fact he went on to win two nobel prizes you know he actually got a nobel prize in chemistry and also for peace and uh, this is very rare accomplishment but <clears throat> there is also another person in this particular story and his name is dan shetman who discovered the quasi crystals icosahedral phase uh, is an interesting phase related to quasi crystals and dan shetman uh, makes an observation and he publishes this particular work which after some particular kind of uh, opposition but unfortunately he has been ridiculed very badly because uh, this did not go according to the convention of the ideas which were prevalent during that particular time and the leader of this opposition was none other than the great linus pauling pauling remarked in one particular meeting that there is no such thing as quasi crystals only quasi scientist so you can see how how badly he was uh, kind of making fun of uh, dan shetman's discovery and there were also other people who got motivated by Linus Pauling and started making comments on Dan Shetman's work for example in one of the meetings somebody told go back and uh, read the textbook okay uh, this is the remark they made there was another uh, remark made uh, where they called uh, Dan Shetman as a disgrace to his team this is very strong uh, kind of criticism and un very you know un un uh, scientific way of looking at things but you can see these are all people who are not just uh, you know small people but they have very super egos and they are all making uh, comments against a work which is supposed to be scientific in nature so discourse is supposed to happen in a in a slightly more cordial way but unfortunately no that is not the case but the interesting aspect is that shetman proved them wrong in fact so much so that uh, his discovery has stood the test of the time and it all culminated very well when uh, dan shetman got the nobel prize in chemistry in 2011 for the discovery of quasi crystals that was uh, a very rare story because uh, such kind of opposition by a very big person to an idea which turns out to be uh, correct uh, does not get the traction and kind of uh, further uh, su- uh, support but in this particular case uh, it's a very unique thing because dan shetman finally got the support of the community and uh, the community really rewarded him for this outstanding uh, achievement of his so again we can infer that uh, ego comes in the path of scientific judgment even among great people and great scientists like linus pauling so when i talk about these kind of people linus pauling uh, eddington or newton <clears throat> these are all excellent scientists but uh, you can see that there is also a negative aspect related to the way they behaved which uh, is unfortunate 
but this happens very prevalently in in scholarly environments <clears throat> there's also very nice references if you somebody is interested in it now there are uh, nice uh, uh, interviews of dan shetman where he describes about linus pauling's behavior which is unfortunate but it's it's important for us to learn about these things now the question arises why do some scholars become egoistic and narcissistic okay this is a question which is just not only occurred to me but this question has been formally addressed also in in uh, in scholarly literature so there is a publication uh, called the febs journal and uh, bruno lemaitre who is a biologist by the way has written a nice paper and the title of the paper and essentially it's a commentary and the title of the commentary is science narcissism and the quest of for visibility and let's see what he has to say the question is why do some scholars become narcissist okay he says quote there is strong evidence that psychological mechanisms similar to those underlying animal dominance hierarchies are present in our species it has been proposed that differences in status in humans do not stem from differences in threat or coercion but rather from differences in the amount of attention both in terms of quality and quantity conferred by others to rise in the hierarchy is to become more visible or in a word more popular so what he is trying to say is uh, that this is true in the family where brothers and sisters compete for parental attention sometimes resulting in friction that can endure over a lifetime stop quote so in this particular case bruno is trying to tell that uh, this narcissism and egoism essentially is arising because they are the the people are trying to seek attention and during that particular process one can falter and make a lot of mistakes because they want to dominate their thought process and uh, they want to be more visible and it is a very interesting psychological analysis which people are are, are have done and uh, there's a lot of interesting literature related to this the same author bruno lightmer has also written a book and the title of the book is an essay on science and narcissism how do high ego personalities drive uh, research in life sciences is a very interesting uh, book and i found uh, some of the discussion to be very fascinating and there's a lot to learn from this particular uh, book because it gives you a sociology of of how scientists think and how as a community a lot of people do make mistakes and there's an elaborate discussion on various different points for example how narcissism affects scientific practice uh, he introduces the narcissistic personality in the scientific context itself he also uh, talks about development and evolutionary roots of narcissism so he's essentially telling what is the original roots why is narcissism uh, really occurs in such a kind of situation and the impact and rise of such kind of behavior on uh, society and science Uh, because as you know science and society all, always are closely connected to each other and what are the effects because of such kind of a behavior it's very beautifully uh, described in this particular uh, in this particular book i would urge you to just have a look at it there is a fascinating discussion on all these topics what is interesting is uh, he also describes a very interesting problem with the prizes also in the same book uh, an essay on science and narcissism so to quote him 
uh, let me tell what is the problem he is talking about uh, nobel prizes stop uh, start quote the nobel prize fits with the narcissistic vision of science peopled by heroes many of whom are very self centered but who of course can turn into nice and ethical people once they have succeeded science requires many different skills and it is regrettable that recognition often goes to the storytellers or the dominant males of the community by taking into account the tacit dimension we could also better highlight the other key roles and skills experimenters tool constructors organizers of database that hugely contribute to the progress of science stop quote now what inference can we draw from this particular thing you can see that uh, history of science shows that intellectual rivalries are very common in fact we just discussed a sample but there are many other cases in which uh, such kind of problem does arise and that's very unfortunate along science uh, is objective uh, the pursuit of science has subjective elements to this so this is an important aspect because we all think that uh, doing science is extremely objective in nature but no uh, there is a lot of human element related to this and one will have to also factor in when one is looking at the sociology of science in in this sense science mainly is a collective enterprise this is sometimes uh, it doesn't get really much emphasis because most of the time people get uh, awards as uh, uh, the author just mentioned and there's a lot of attention given to people who have already got awards or people who have done some very interesting work maybe they actually have done some interesting work but that has been done in a collective environment and this is something which we have to always remember that science is a collective enterprise and the lone genius viewpoint is essentially flawed you know because somebody working in in total isolation without the help of the community suddenly coming up with something outstanding it makes a very nice movie <laughs> but unfortunately in reality science is not that that done way so that is something which we should be very cognizant about so the community does play a very significant role in in pursuit of science this we have to always emphasize and this is something which we should never forget while while doing science we need to appreciate it as both as scholars and as society you know it is not enough that we as scholars kind of know about this but the society should also be aware of the fact that uh, science is a collective endeavor so the room for ego is not much and uh, one should not give over emphasis to uh, kind of only individuals because uh, knowledge is built up bottom up so to speak because there's collectively a lot of people who have contributed to building up and uh, many a times the person who really is working at the forefront and at the peak gets the gets the emphasis but uh, a lot of people would have also contributed uh, in forming that particular mountain and uh, one should not only just see the peak of the mountain so the ultimate kind of inference is uh, we should let go the ego that is the main inference of this particular episode let go the ego uh, because the lessons from the history of science clearly tells that uh, if really ego plays a critical role then uh, it curtails the progress of science and it also curtails the progress of a human being 
and uh, this is uh, this is something which we have to keep in mind because it leads to conflicts it leads to unnecessary uh, kind of uh, disturbance disturbance in terms of how one does science and it also leads to uh, a lot of problems in mental health and uh, this is something which you, we should be cognizant about and we should always be very careful uh, while looking at this particular pursuit of science and therefore there should not be a room for ego and importantly humility should play a very critical role in in doing science because that is the best way to learn something and therefore uh, history of science tells us that there are many repeated mistakes which have happened uh, but uh, one should avoid uh, making such mistakes that is the most important motive uh, behind this particular uh, podcast so to speak now let me end uh, the the episode with a poem which i wrote all uh, roughly about uh, 15 years ago yes don't be surprised i used to write poetry long time ago and the title of that particular poem is called as humbled and uh, it goes the following way thrive thrive and thrive humans vociferously resonate enslaved to conquer and survive their thoughts ignite to detonate they herald a belligerent tone to unveil the encrypted nature operosness fractures any stone to construct a magnanimous future their freedom is in flight a flight to reach infinity but they fail to reach despite their enthralled capability they thrive again and fail but never give up the pursuit they wipe their tears and hail to rejuvenate the dispute if only sapiens could fly their covetousness ceases to be bounded so nature humbles their supply to keep the humans grounded this is a poem i wrote uh, roughly about 2009 and it is it is uh, part of my old blog if somebody is interested go to astitva and uh, you can uh, look at the poem called humbled i've also kind of displayed uh, in the visual medium uh, a very beautiful uh, kind of uh, illustrative photograph of robert and shane park harrison where he's trying to actually recreate this image where a person is tying up his hands to flying birds and uh, is looking at whether he can also fly but uh, unfortunately he is still grounded and uh, this is kind of a great metaphor for this uh, humility what uh, a, a human being has to have in order to actually progress as as both a culture and as a society it's important that we know that uh, we live in an, in in a collective environment so this is pratidwani uh, where we try to humanize science i hope you enjoyed this particular episode and uh, if you are interested please also check out our uh, youtube channel which is called as science meets history which is also housed uh, uh, with the pratidwani episodes so you can also check out the episodes uh, of pratidwani on this particular uh, youtube channel uh, we are of course on youtube spotify google podcast apple podcast and various different platforms specifically the solo podcast uh, is generally what i create it will be both in the audio and the visual format and uh, therefore you can also watch the episode and also hear to the episodes so therefore uh, and this is exclusively for the solo podcasts 
and uh, please remember that all the content what i create is open access and non commercial and uh, this is something i i am very very particular about and because of the fact that uh, the progression of science and scientific thinking is very important and uh, what better way to propagate this particular thought process uh, than uh, uh, kind of uh, look into the uh, history of science which is uh, one of my favorite topics of research also so you can also check out a lot of other content on my blog uh, which uh, is uh, called as backscattering and you'll also uh, check out the uh, content what we create all the things what i generally post on various different platforms are also posted on on my blog so please uh, check them out and i hope uh, you will uh, enjoy the content uh, whatever is discussed in the part of the podcast or on the videos or on the blogs so this is pratidwani where we try to humanize science with uh, gv pawan kumar bye bye